0: Gang. Welcome back to the RR Rounds podcast. I'm Jonathan Wallace, and this past week our simulation program held its first simulation of the new academic year. The theme was Introduction to Simulation and Rural Resuscitation, and everyone that participated did a smashing job. On this episode, I want to share a few observations and comments from that session. So think of this as a primer as to A, how to make the most out of any simulation training which you participate in, and B, how to optimize your personal performance and your team's performance in a rural resuscitation. So first of all, it's really challenging when someone is stepping into simulation for the first time. We often feel a little self-conscious and sometimes the whole scenario feels a little contrived, whether you're using a $250,000 mannequin or just a pillow it always feels a little bit unreal and especially when you're standing in front of your peers, it can feel like you're being judged. Although I don't think that's necessarily the case. I've been doing this now for about seven years and we've had well over a hundred physicians go through the program and I don't think I've ever witnessed anyone being critical other than in a most constructive and supportive way. That said, it still can feel very intimidating, but the first step is to just jump in and accept it's going to feel a little bit strange. Now, the more you can pretend that the scenario is real and buy into the illusion that it's a real patient and talk to that mannequin or that pillow as if they are real, the more beneficial the experience is going to be. And that goes for everyone in the room. Secondly, for those of your peers who are not in the hot seat, so to speak, the more those individuals can get involved and play an authentic, supportive role, is really going to determine how much everyone gets out of the event. The sim literature indicates that the majority of learning takes place during the debrief portion and not the actual simulation itself, which is maybe a little counterintuitive. Often people assume that the maximum learning is from sitting in the hot seat and sweating a little bit to making all the hard decisions, but that's not true. For anyone who's observing a sim, the literature demonstrates that as long as you're paying attention and thinking through the steps actively of what you would be doing if you're actually the one making the decisions or playing whatever appropriate role in that simulation, you're going to benefit as much as the person who's actually there live in the hot seat or providing the support role. So get as much as you can out of any simulation that you participate in by actively participating and not figuratively laying back with a bowl of popcorn and pretending that this is entertainment intended to amuse you. It just doesn't work that way and you won't learn nearly as much if you're not actively there thinking through trying to follow along and make decisions. So that's really the Intro to Sim component and now I want to talk about the Intro to Rural Resuscitation component. So we're going to step out of the Sim Lab now and into the resuscitation room in a hospital like Fort St. Nowhere. So when we're learning, most of us learn resuscitation in a big hospital environment where you may have 17 people turn up to a cardiac arrest. And this is just not reflective of resuscitation in a rural situation. Obviously who turns up is completely dependent on that community that you're working in. On average though, I would say a normal participant count in a rural arrest might be one physician, two nurses, and a lab tech or an x-ray tech. Now, if you call for help, you might be lucky and get a second or a third physician, and they might be an anesthetist or a surgeon depending on your facility. You may get a couple of extra nurses as well, but you're never going to get the 17-member team that you're generally blessed with in an urban setting. So to sit back as the team leader at the foot of the bed and not move and not do anything other than boss people around is not the most efficient way to manage a rural resuscitation. The way I like to think of it is that we have our nursing colleagues and other technical specialists such as RTs and paramedics and so on, and they each have a specialized skill set that they're good at. You're going to achieve maximal team efficiency when you assign these colleagues to the specific tasks that they are good at and that are required in this resuscitation. However, there may be other generic tasks which overlap, meaning that multiple people could perform that task. So, for example, when I start a resuscitation, I use the mnemonic IOM. That just reminds me that pretty much everyone I resuscitate has to have I for IV, O for oxygen, and M for monitors. Now you can use whatever starting mnemonic you like. Another great version is Movie, and that stands for M monitors, O oxygen, V vital signs, reminding you to pay attention to that initial set of vital signs, I being IV access and E being for special equipment for things that pertain to that particular resuscitation. So for example a warming blanket for an exposure patient or a chest tube set for a chest trauma that you're expecting to arrive or anything else you might want to prepare for in advance. So whether you use IOM or movie or some other acronym, this is generally how a resuscitation would start. And yes, you can stand at the foot of the bed and ask your one nurse that you're blessed with in this remote nursing station to do all three of those IVO2 monitor things while you stand there and watch or you can get off your fat butt and do some of those things for your nurse. So for example if you're the type of physician as most physicians are in Canada who is not very confident in IV starts it might be better to assign the nurse who is going to be more successful and confident in IV starts to manage that detail while you for example figure out how to put on an oxygen mask or better yet learn how to put on the monitors. So I encourage you in a non-resuscitation situation to learn that, to figure out how to put on the monitors, to learn how to turn the device on and set it so that the blood pressure is auto-cycling every five minutes and so that your team is not left staring at the same stale blood pressure for 30 minutes without anyone realizing it. And all of those other tricky little pieces of the initial resuscitation setup that are time-consuming but not all that complicated are things that you can pick up. And thus, when a real resuscitation starts, you're able to take care of some of those minor housekeeping tasks, freeing up your other members to do more specialized activities. And this extends far beyond the initial IOM. Once we get into the actual resuscitation and now you have your nurse mixing up complicated vasopressor infusions for example that no one's really very comfortable with or practiced at, you as the physician may need to take care of other simple things. So for example a chest pain where you may be ordering some aspirin, nitroglycerin, maybe some fentanyl as well as heparin or TNK. Well If you know where you can go and find the bottle of aspirin and you know where you can get a new bottle of nitroglycerin, there's no reason why you as the physician can't go and do those things and leave the nurse free to mix up the more complicated heparin or TNK infusions. So in my mind, this is the most efficient way to run your resuscitation, to divide and conquer in a very strategic manner. And that allows the team member with the most expertise to focus on the critical intervention that they are most practiced at. Don't bog down that person with simple mindless stuff that someone else in the team with free hands can do for them. Now the last thing I want to touch on this episode is the role of checklists in resuscitation. I am a huge huge fan of checklists and I'll tell you it's probably because I'm a pilot and I've been trained how to use checklists properly. There is a big difference between a good checklist and a really bad checklist. A bad checklist is one that gives you three paragraphs to read. So for example, you're drawing up your drug cocktail for an RSI and you have all these caveats and a complicated flow diagram. That is not at all a checklist. That's more of a memory map or something. I don't know what the correct terminology is, but it's just kind of junk. And it may not be all that helpful. So I would encourage you not to do that and call it a checklist. If you have a checklist, or better yet, you're making a checklist, you want to have it as a list of real quick, simple steps that don't require significant thought at all. For example, if you're preparing your airway equipment, your checklist may be number one, laryngoscope, number two, confirm bulb works, number three, blade, and so on. You need to be selective about which checklists you choose and be very strategic in how you employ them. I would encourage you not to rely on the presence of a checklist being there and provided for you by a given organization. It's really nice when you go into the resuscitation room and the ACLS charts are on the wall and there's a binder of protocols on the cart, but don't count on them being there because one day they won't be. Or your arrest may take place in a room at the back of the ward where there aren't any ACLS posters or binders. What's a better plan is to have a reliable checklist system that you're already familiar with in your back pocket or on your phone or somewhere else reliable and immediately accessible to you. Checklists are never there to tell you what to do, but rather to remind you of the correct order of things and ensure that you don't miss anything important. So for example, this week we had a scenario on anaphylaxis. And yes, the health authority may have a flow sheet and perhaps it's in a binder of other flow sheets that you dig for and find. And if that's their bully for them, it's amazing. But what you really need to know are the critical steps to take during the first five to 15 minutes of any given resuscitation and not have a three page summary with references and complicated diagrams and language. So you can create your own checklist for anaphylaxis or you can go find someone else's checklist that's already been vetted for you. What I highly recommend and what we provide to all of our r and round simulation participants is a copy of something called the RCM. That stands for the Resuscitation Crisis Manual. And that's a book that was written by a couple of doctors, Scott Weingar, who runs the MCRIT podcast, and David Boroshoff, an Australian anesthesiologist who is also a pilot and clearly knows his way around checklists. And this RCM is a brilliant book. You open it up and the first 20 pages or so deal with the most common life-threatening presentations. So for example, anaphylaxis, DKA, sepsis and so on. And as you flip through this book to the corresponding page for say anaphylaxis, it will tell you in concise bullet points the 10 or so initial but critical steps to follow. And if you as a rural physician can get through those steps, as much as a resource-limited facility can allow of course, By the time that the helicopter is arriving for your patient, you've already done really, really well by this patient in this situation. This book is written in a very simple format where you can hand the book to another team member and just have them read the steps to you. So now you can sit there with your hands full doing something, but just listening in the background and say, Yep, that step's done. Yep, that step's done. Nope, we missed that. Let's do that now. Nope, that doesn't apply because we don't have ECMO and Fort St. Nowhere and so on. And so to have this little booklet that's made out of waterproof material that can be wiped down after the resuscitation is absolutely brilliant in a rural or a remote or resource-limited situation. I highly recommend you obtain a copy and keep it in your emergency bag and take it to every emergency shift with you. And hopefully this goes without saying, but I have no financial interest in selling copies of this book. I just happen to think it's a really, really valuable resource. So in a nutshell, that's my advice for how to be successful in simulation training and how to be the most successful you can be in a rural resuscitation. The ground rules again are for simulation to do the best you can to treat the simulation as though it is a real patient encounter. This is not the time for jokes. And to push yourself to get through the initial jitters that are involved with simulation. Take turns with your colleagues and remember to always be supportive and respectful. With regards to rural resuscitation, Remember that when you have a very small team, you do not have the luxury of being able to stand back and tell everyone else what to do. You need to get involved by doing simple things that are within your wheelhouse to free up your colleagues with specialized expertise, such as nurses or RTs or paramedics or whomever, to do the procedures which they excel at and which we suck at. So for example, common things that physicians suck at would be vascular access, mixing up drugs and starting infusions, working through bureaucratic paperwork to authorize TNK, and so on. Now I have to say that it is very important to balance these hands-on contributions, which we as the physicians can personally make on behalf of the team, with maintaining situational awareness. Because as team leader, it is paramount that we maintain situational awareness. And if we get drawn into a complicated procedure or looking at a drug monograph or something else that could have been assigned to another team member, We're now at risk of missing the fact that the patient has become apneic or gone into cardiac arrest. So you have to balance these two competing priorities. Remember that there is tremendous value in checklists for critical and time sensitive interventions, but it really depends on the checklist being written in a high quality and user friendly manner. Any checklist that has a step that is more than one simple sentence is probably not written properly. I would throw that away or rework or rewrite it in a way where you can read through the entire checklist quickly and hit all of the necessary steps as a reminder to yourself with just targeted details, such as a critical drug dose, as compared to a complicated piece of prose that will pull your attention away from what you're doing and take an unnecessary amount of time to decode and decipher. Ultimately, the secret to a smooth resuscitation comes down to two goals. Number one, make sure that you hit all of the critical points And that's where a fantastic checklist resource will step in and help you. And number two, once you know all of the critical steps, to divide and conquer by dividing up the various steps between all of the team members that are available and assigning the critical steps to the people that are most efficiently going to get them done. And assigning any interim SCUT work to whomever is available and that has the time to perform it. Okay, so those are my thoughts on how to be successful in simulation training and how to be successful in any sort of rural resuscitation. I hope it was helpful, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye for now.